Amen. Well, hopefully you received a set of the outline on the way in, and so if you would, uh, take your notes. Uh, anybody need a copy? Anybody got in here without a copy? Brother Carl needs one. Anybody else? Anybody else needs one? And uh, one of you men want to grab Brother Carl one? We want to make sure Brother Carl gets all of his blanks filled in tonight, and he came to get his money's worth, so we want to make sure that he's got it. And uh, it's good to see everybody tonight, and I know that... Uh, We've had a great day in the house of God, and so let's study a couple of these. And, of course, uh, Route 66, it's uh, hard to believe. I know it's been quite a journey, but I appreciate all of you making the journey with us. And uh, if, you, if you go to the next one there, I think we see the various books, and we're in those uh, very bright green books, uh, the books of the uh, prophets. And then go to the next one, I think we have, yeah, there the long list, the last column. And so with the Lord's help, we'll get through three of those. And so notice there, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And then uh, the next time we're together, we will try to conclude this. And that was our prayer as we're getting ready to launch a few new things in the new year. And uh, be in prayer about uh, there's a lot of things going on. And a lot of times people just, uh, you know, they just think about that far in front of their face but uh, we always need to be planning and preparing, and of course, uh, God's given me some uh, direction for the new year, and uh, praying that it'll be a, a year that God will use in our lives, just like this year has been. And uh, so I'm looking forward to some new series, some new uh, direction, but this has been a blessing to me as I've studied it. I've told many people that I think I've put more study into the Route 66 series many times, and even my Sunday morning messages, because there's just so much in each one of these books. And so you follow along tonight. The book of Nahum is the book of perversity and penalty. The book of perversity and penalty. I told the folks a little while ago that, you know, a lot of times we think, and it is true, that we're living in some very troubling days. But uh, the reality is, is it's this world we live in has always been perverse. Uh, crooked, uh, wicked, and so on. And it was that day, that way in Nahum's day as well. And Nahum, his very name means consoler or comforter. Uh, he is the world's prophet. And I say that in, in as much as Nineveh's judgment is the world's object lesson of the doom of the wicked. Now we'll say a little bit more, but how many of you remember what other prophet did we talk about with Nineveh? Jonah. But we see Nineveh coming back into view with the ministry, the prophecy of Nahum. Now, he's the prophet of wrath as well in that he describes God as vindicator of right, as the avenger of wrong, and the final judge of all issues. And God is the final judge. And so we uh, learn much even from the very name of Nahum. Now, his message of doom came more than 100 years after Jonah's message to the same city. So 100 years after the city turned in Jonah's day comes the prophecy of Nahum. Now, his prophecy was written after the Egyptian city of Noamon fell in 660 B.C. For Nahum used this, notice its fall, to illustrate the fall of Nineveh. It was written before 612 B.C., for this is when Nineveh was sacked and defeated. So 
Again, his prophecy, the doom that comes to Nineveh, is more than 100 years after Jonah's message. Now, again, I always like to show uh, when these prophets live, when their time to serve the Lord was. It says here that he was contemporary with Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk, and out of the list of the prophets, he was the seventh, and you have the chart there that you can look and see where he is located in that line of the prophets. Now, the contents of Nahum, notice the book concerns itself with Nineveh. Someone has suggested that Nahum is a a sequel to Jonah. Uh, There had been a turning point, no doubt, when you study the preaching of Jonah under his preaching, but Nineveh gradually went back to her ways of sin. Now, Look, I think you see the same pattern with America. I mean, America has forgotten 9-11. America has forgotten a lot of the past and has just gone back to her same old sinful ways. Well, we see the same thing with the city of Nineveh. God had been patient with the inhabitants, but in Nahum's day, sin was so widespread and hearts were so hardened and the wills of the people were so stubborn that God declared them incurable. That was God's words, uh, as if they had reached a point that you see like in the book of Romans chapter 1 where God gave them up. Now it says Nineveh had become, and this is chapter 2 verse 11 and 12, had become like a lion's den full of prey. And so we see the wickedness, the sin, and of course God's feelings towards this city of Nineveh. Now his prophecy of doom was the announcement that not only Nineveh, but all Assyria would be destroyed. Assyria had been used by God and not only Assyria, but many other uh, wicked kings and, and other people, but they many times God will use them, notice, as God's rod against his disobedient people. Having served his purpose, talking about Assyria, notice their defeat for their own sins is certain. So not only Nineveh, but also all of Assyria. The powers that be were still and still are ordained of God, Romans 13, 1. Nineveh and Assyria served to illustrate God's truth of retribution. And we, we see this as we study this small book in the Word of God. Now, I think we have the chart there, and you can see it if you want to flip back, if you're not able to see it here, maybe part of it hidden because of the flag, but really two main sections to the book. And notice it begins with justice and judgment, the decree and the description, of course, the judge, the verdict, and the execution. And hopefully some of these simple outlines that I give you this way are something visual as you're studying the book just to kind of help you. It breaks it down, gives you the chapters and the verses there, and you can follow along that way. Now, the character of this book, of course, in this section is prophetical, and God, again, uh, giving the prophecy to Nahum about Nineveh. The subject of the book is the revelation of the majesty of God and the announcement of the sure and final judgment of bloody Nineveh. Now, when I say purpose, and I hope you've been getting this, but this would be for us. What is is the purpose? What does God use this for? Well, here it is, to teach us that God is long-suffering, God is full of mercy, but that He is also just and that He must punish sin. You see, if He did not, He would, could not be God. So God, yes, is loving, He's long-suffering, He's full of mercy, 
But again, the wages of sin, the Bible talks about. And we will reap what we sow, and we see that purpose coming out even in the book of Nahum. Now, simple outline, three parts, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It's the overthrow of Nineveh declared, and we see the character power of God beginning in the book, the destruction of Nineveh, the peace of Judah. Then the overthrow of Nineveh described in the second of the three chapters, and the siege and capture of the city of Nineveh, the utter spoiling of the city, and then the overthrow of Nineveh defended. And this is uh, the defense comes because of Nineveh's sin. Listen, God does not have to deal with those that are living right in the sight of God. And so understand that is punishment doesn't come unless there's sin in the heart, sin in the camp. And then notice how the book ends, wealth and strength could not save Nineveh. No matter how strong, how much money, and that there will be many someday that will miss heaven because they think of who they are, what they have, and again, without the Lord. So we see the defense there and all of this dealing with the city of Nineveh. Now, the scope of the book is his prophecy was about 28 years in duration. And I mentioned earlier, but in chapter 1, verse 1, Nahum is identified as the writer of this small book. And he wrote to the people of his prophecy was Nineveh, none other than. And also it comes with a promise of peace to Judah. So we find here that the primary target audience is Nineveh. Now, when did he write it? Well, he prophesied the doom of Nineveh from 648 to 620 B.C. That's a time historically when the city was at its height. And he recorded this in the holy city of Jerusalem, in the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, the third chapter, the last chapter, is the key chapter. It describes Israel's reaping, what they will reap. And, of course, Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We see that coming out in the last of the chapters, Israel's reaping. The key verses are all in chapter 1. Verse 2, verse 3, and verse 7. The Bible says, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, And the clouds are the dust of his feet. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. So some great key verses there. The key word I just read is jealous. God is a jealous God, chapter 1, verse number 2. The key phrase in chapter 1 also is where it says an utter, U-T-T-E-R, an utter end, a complete end. The key thought is judgment follows sin. And again, the price tag because of their sin as a people, as a city. The spiritual thought that we get from this, kind of got from the title of it, is the severity of God. God is going to deal with us as a father deals with his children. The uniqueness of the book, three things that I saw here, and there are many, but Notice Nineveh's destruction predicted throughout these three chapters. Notice 
the ways that it was predicted, with an overwhelming flood. While its leaders are drunk, they shall be devoured as stubble. The enemy against them shall be like chariots with flaming torches. In drunkenness, they shall seek to prepare their defenses. The gates of the river shall be open, and the palace shall be dissolved. Nineveh is like a flooded pool whose waters run wild. In chapter 2, by its being leveled, it will become empty and void and waste. Notice this statement. When there is no hope for survival, God will make an utter end of the place with no healing for thy bruises or of thy bruises. So, again, Nineveh's destruction, many ways in just a short little book on how it was predicted. Now, what was the accuracy of Nahum's prophecy? Well, again, being the Word of God, that's one way that we can see because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But another way that you can with this book is even taking an archaeological view. And there was a team that, that got together and they wanted, to, along with Nahum's prophecy, to verify the accuracy of his predictions, even to the minutest details. Now here's what they found. This great city stood on the left bank of the Tigris River. Its walls were 100 feet high which were strengthened by 1,500 towers wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side on top of it, and the city was 60 miles in circumference. The side of the city that was not protected by the Tigris River was surrounded by a moat. The oldest aqueduct in history supplied the water to the city, and even during times of siege, the city maintained its own food supply. To the Ninevites, their city was unconquerable. Yet Nahum's prediction of it was that it would be destroyed, and it was. And so much of what we just read, which is uh, truth about the, the city, the details of the city, even archaeology has verified the prophecy of Nahum along with the Word of God itself. Now, here's an interesting uh, statement, sinning against the light. Nineveh had seen the light, as we would say, under Jonah's preaching. They turned to the Lord during that time of Jonah. But notice, from the darkness of paganism, through the preaching of the Word, she, talking about Nineveh, had come into the light of God's blessing Jonah chapter 3. Years later, in Nahum's day, she was like those that rebel against the light. Notice that's from Job chapter 24. Light then became darkness to them, and how great that darkness was. Light is our best friend, and the wise obey it. It is, notice here, to oppose the light is useless. Light will lead to more light, and it produces godliness. And again, we see this world we're living in today that wants absolutely nothing to do with the light. 
And we know that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And people need the Lord. Now, how was he magnified in the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7? He is a stronghold that we can go to him. And notice he is also, chapter 1, the bringer of good tidings and peace. The bringer of good tidings and peace. Now, in conclusion on this first book tonight, many are the stormy days that we shall see. In the life that we live, troubles will come. But on every trouble, notice every trouble may be turned into a blessing. Understand that God allows things, and if we apply this right, notice it will endear the Savior. It will wean us from the world. It will make the Bible become more precious to us and strengthen our desires for the better things of the Lord. So again, turning every trial, every trouble into a blessing. Jesus is a stronghold, the Bible tells us, in the day of trouble. To him we may run, find safety. If we enter into him, we shall find and enjoy supplies, which he provides according to his riches. He will protect us from every enemy, secure us in all wars and storms of this present world. Aren't you glad for Jesus, our stronghold? And notice Nahum's message of comfort was to a people who live in fear of a powerful and godless nation. And God will destroy any godless nation. What a warning to America. And notice the last statement. The prophet tells it truthfully. And he drives home one of the most important and fundamental lessons about life. Here it is. There are consequences for our actions. We are fortunate enough that our God is patient, merciful, and forgiving. But that doesn't mean that we can and will get away with our sins. In the end, the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. This truth should dictate how you and I live our lives every day. And so there are many great things, good lessons from just a small prophecy of Nahum. Now look at Habakkuk, all right? The book of the mysteries of providence. The book of Habakkuk, what a wonderful book. His name means embrace. He was the questioning prophet. Some say he's the Job among the prophets. Inasmuch as the problem of both of them was, notice the statement, why, have you ever heard this, a just and omnipotent God at times permits the wicked to flourish and the righteous to suffer affliction? Anybody ever heard something like that? A lot of people. Now with Job, and when you study that, and we've had in years, in, in maybe even at the beginning of this year, the problem with Job as he addressed it was personal. If you remember, it began with Job personally. It stayed that way throughout the book. While when you look at Habakkuk, it's not personal, it's national. This is something on a national level. Habakkuk spent time ministering for the Lord. He was a contemporary with Nahum that we just looked at, also with Jeremiah and possibly Zephaniah. And in the the line of the prophets, he is the tenth of the prophets. And again, you can see that on the chart. 
Now, the book, the contents of the book, it's a mixture. In uh, Habakkuk, we find the prophet's address to God in the people's name and to the people in God's name. So we find it a mixture of both. It was the office of the prophets to carry messages both ways. So they would receive something from God taken to the people, but many times they would also receive something from the people and take it directly to God. And so we find the mixture here in the book of Habakkuk that deals with the mysteries of providence. Now, it is an interaction and communion between a gracious God and a gracious soul. It refers particularly to the invasion of the land of Judah by the Chaldeans, but it is of general use, especially to help us through that great temptation with which good men of, in all ages have been affected, and that is the arising from the power and prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous by it. Many times we think that the wicked are winning, but remember, God is always sovereign. God is always in control. Uh, again, don't, don't look at uh, what's going on in this world. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Now, Habakkuk was the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. He had, to que- he had a question to ask God about everything. By the way, there's nothing wrong with asking questions to God. I find that it's okay to ask questions. It's the spirit with which you ask them many times that I think God many times does not like, does not prefer. prefer. And so we find here that Habakkuk had many questions He wanted to know why a just God would use a wicked, sinful nation to punish a less sinful people. He wanted to know the mysteries of providence to understand everything. Now, providence, what is it? Pro-video, to see beforehand. And listen, only God knows the end from the beginning. God knows what He's doing. He makes no mistakes. And I'll tell you this, listen, we should never question the sovereignty of God. We may seek to try to understand it, but if we understood it all, we wouldn't need God. And so God has a purpose and a plan behind each one of us. We must continue to trust His providence. Now, unlike most Christians, notice here, Habakkuk took his problems to the Lord. That's a good thing. And he learned this. Notice he learned through this to trust God in the dark. Now, I'm not talking about the lights are out. I'm talking about the world that he's lived in. Have you learned yet to trust God in the dark? But the prophet, he learned this. He took his problems to the Lord. The book opens in darkness, but notice how it closes in the light. It opens with a question mark, but it closes with an exclamation point. Kind of interesting how you see the book open and close, open and close. And I think we have the chart on this one. You have it in the back. But you see here again uh, Habakkuk's complaints. He listens and then he prays. I love the progression here. And then bounce back out there for a second. Back out. Can you get back out? Go small. No, there you go. So notice uh, first question, God's answer. Second question, 
God's answer. Again, him asking these questions, and we'll see that in the outline here in just a minute. But notice the book itself, same character, it's prophetical. Again, the dealing with the prophet, the subject for us as we study the book of Habakkuk is God's holiness manifested through his judgments upon Judah by the hand of the Chaldeans. And again, this is not the only time in the Word of God God uses another nation or another king. Now, the purpose is to teach us that God is holy and God must always act in righteousness to every man. God is a holy God and God is a righteous God. Now, the outline, notice here, as we just saw there, is divided, and it's actually divided into three prayers. Notice it begins part of chapter 1. The second prayer is in chapter 1 going into chapter 2, and the third prayer is dealt with there in chapter number 3. Now, it begins with the indictment against Judah, the invasion of the Chaldeans that God used as a rod against them. The second prayer, notice that we see the challenge, the charge, and the conclusion, and then the answer that comes from that prayer, the principle of righteousness that's announced and the principle applied to the Chaldeans that God was using. Now, the third prayer and the answer that comes in the end of the book is the cry for revival, the vision of Jehovah, and the effect upon the prophet at the end of the prophecy. Now, the scope of the prophecy for Habakkuk was 15 years, and he's identified in chapter 1, verse 1, as well as many others, that he is the writer of the book. And he wrote, notice, is he prophesied just before the Babylonians came against Jerusalem in the first siege, and that's all the way back to Chronicles 36, when the Babylonians were on the way, but had not yet arrived, it was written to the southern kingdom of Judah. And there are some hints of judgment to the invading Chaldeans, but it was written to the southern kingdom of Judah. It was written between 625 and 610 B.C. It was recorded also in Jerusalem. And the key chapter is chapter 3 as well, which deals with Habakkuk's faith. The key verse is in chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live, how? By faith. The just shall live by faith. And so there's the key word. The key word is the word faith. Interesting question for the key phrase here, why dust? In other words, Lord, why are you doing what you're doing? Why dust? Verse 3 of chapter 1. The key thought is prayer changes things. How many of you believe that? Prayer changes things. I believe prayer changes people. Prayer changes things. A spiritual thought is there's light ahead. Kind of hard to think of that even in our day, isn't it? As dark as this world is. But listen, God has some great plans for his people. There's light ahead. And so we see this even in Habakkuk's day. Now, a couple things about the book being unique. 
Uh, five woes, the woes of Habakkuk in chapter 2. Notice this, these are judgments, woes. Isaiah and others also had some recorded in the Word of God. Notice against dishonesty, covetousness, the bloody building enterprises of that day, the drunkenness and the idolatry. And remember, these were not Habakkuk's words. These were the judgments, the woes of God. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, how about this? You ever heard of somebody being guilty by association? Well, you see this here. Among those who will not inherit the kingdom of God are the drunkards. The Bible tells us even in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, and notice equally guilty before God is one who makes another drink. Interesting. And you ought to spend some time study that out. How is Christ magnified? Three ways. He's the man who justifies by faith. He's the Lord in His holy temple, chapter 2, verse 20. And of course, He's also magnified in His redemptive work. His redemptive work, and we thank God for His redemption. Now, in Habakkuk's prayer, he describes the majesty of God. He described the wonderful history of God's dealing with His people in bringing them into Canaan. This is the foreshadowing of a greater salvation yet to come as we catch glimpses of the working of Him who is the brightness of His Father's glory. And so we see some of that that will come uh, to pass in days ahead. Three times in his prayer, he uses the exclamation, Selah. We see that even in the Psalms. The word Selah, what is it? It's a call to pause and to be silent in our soul before the Lord that we may give Him time to speak to us and that we would listen to Him when He does. You know, kind of a lot of times we pray to the Lord, it's gimme, 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 right? And what God wants us to do is just to close our mouth and to listen to His voice. Some of the things that we can learn from Habakkuk, notice here that, number one, God's ways are not our way, yet He can be trusted. He can be trusted. Even when things seem chaotic, God is still in control. Number three, third lesson, God wants what's best for us even when it's hard. God never promised us smooth seas, did He? But He always wants what's best for us. Number four, fourth lesson, understanding how God works is not my job, trusting Him is. I don't understand how it all works. Number five, peace and joy don't come from my circumstances, peace and joy come from God. All right? And then how about number six, my timing is just that, it's my timing. But God's timing is perfect. God's always on time. And so understand that, some great lessons from Habakkuk. Now, Zephaniah is the book of wonder and wrath. The book of wonder and wrath. Zephaniah's name means hidden of Jehovah. Hidden of Jehovah. He was the judgment prophet. The prophet of punishment and promise. And he was the, also known as the prophet of the Gentile conversion. So again, many of these prophets... You see God using them in many ways. Habakkuk concealed himself 
in silence, but Zephaniah went to the opposite extreme in telling the world who he was. Habakkuk stood high and he looked far off. Zephaniah stooped low and looked close. So again, the approach, the use by God of two totally different prophets. Now, Zephaniah was the hellfire and brimstone preacher of the Old Testament. He was the great-grandson of King Hezekiah, and he was related to King Josiah in whose reign that he prophesied. So you could tell uh, the background behind Zephaniah, and uh, he was contemporary with Nahum and Jeremiah. Zephaniah was the eighth in the line of prophets, and again, you can make reference back to see that. Now, the contents of Zephaniah, Zephaniah foretold the destruction of the Jews by the Chaldeans for their sins. He called them to repentance, but bluntly told of the judgment to come if they did not. So again, God giving opportunity, but what the Lord wants is for us to turn from our sin and turn towards Him, but if not, judgment will come This is Zephaniah's prophecy. He also predicted the ruin of many other nations, all of which did come to pass. He prophesied the calling of the Gentiles, the conversion of the Jews, and the comfortable state of the spiritual seed in gospel times, especially in the latter day. And so we see all of this. Now, we looked at this a while back, but notice that Zephaniah, among the minor prophets, is yet another one that placed emphasis on the day of the Lord. And we talked about this, but again, in the Bible, it's a period believed by many to not only include the Great Tribulation, which precedes the millennium, but the millennial reign of Christ himself. And so, again, you can see the emphasis coming in in Zephaniah on the day of the Lord. Now, we have the chart also on this particular one, I think. There we go. And notice we see the focus, the judgment on Judah, and then, of course, the nations coming into view there, the woes and against the nations, and then the restoration of, of, for Judah, the remnant, and, of course, going from sin, the offer of salvation. God is so good. And, again, the focus on the day of the Lord at the bottom. Notice the day of wrath and anger and the day of joy, of joy there. So, again, a lot going on in the book of Zephaniah. And a wonderful prophetical book, as the character you see there is uh, that of prophecy. Now, the subject of this book is God's great wrath upon the world and also upon Judah in particular in the day of the Lord and his great mercy in hiding the remnant of Israel who will seek him. It's a great prophetical book, God's wrath upon the world. Notice the purpose is to show us that our, show us our Heavenly Father who saved us from His wrath. How did He do that? He placed upon it upon His Son, and notice He will keep us safe from wrath to come. He will keep us safe from wrath to come. The outline is small, but again follows the book. Notice the retribution upon the chosen nation, the retribution upon the Gentile nations, The accusation against Jerusalem, chapter 3, beginning of that chapter, 
And then we see the restoration of the chosen nation as the book comes to a close. So again, the retribution upon the chosen nation, the Gentile nations, the accusation against Jerusalem, and the restoration of the chosen nation. The period of his prophecy, not long, just nine years. Chapter 1, again, verse 1, identifies Zephaniah as the writer. And Zephaniah's prophecy was written to the people of his day, which would be the southern kingdom of Judah and all nations. It really kind of holds a universal appeal. So again, the southern kingdom, but all nations. When was it written? Well, it was between the years 634 and 625. Also recorded in Jerusalem... And as well as the other two small books that we've already looked at tonight, the key chapter is the third chapter. The conclusion of the book, it deals with God's deliverance. The key verse is chapter 1, verse number 12. It came to pass, shall come to pass, at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees. They say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. And again, seeing how God works in this prophecy. Now, the key word is the word search. And as you guessed probably earlier, the key phrase is the day of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse number 14. The key thought is the fire of jealousy. A fire of jealousy. Two spiritual thoughts to the book of Zephaniah. Trust in the name of the Lord. And here's an interesting one, chapter 3, verse 14. Sing as you go. God's put a new song in our heart. Sing as you go, the joy of the Lord. The uniqueness of the book, first of all, the Lord in the midst. When you get to that third chapter, it describes the sinful condition of a soul that is apart from Christ. It deals with the sins of commission as well as the sins of omission. Those who should have been leaders, notice who should have been leaders in righteousness are really leaders in iniquity. They're described in the book as Princes, judges, prophets, and priests. How sad. Notice then the Lord himself takes the place of these leaders. And we see him where? In the midst. Fulfilling each of these offices in turn. So notice the four ways we see the Lord in the midst. First of all, he comes to our hearts as judge. He convicts us of all that is sinful there, bringing his judgment to light. He is judge. Notice the second office. He comes as prophet. As he comes as a prophet to us, teaching us with pure lips to call upon his name. He's still in the midst, dealing with the pride of our hearts, bringing us low into the place of blessing 
in the presence of His holiness. So He comes to us as judge, as prophet. Notice, thirdly, He comes in the midst of us as king to reign in undisputed sway in the heart that is surrendered to Him. When the Lord reigns, chapter 3, the song begins. And then number four, he is in the midst as our great high priest, bringing us into the place of communion with himself, and it is here that we know him as the beloved of our souls. And so the Lord in the midst. Again, the replacement there of all those leaders who should have been leading righteously, but thank God for the Lord who is a righteous God. Then notice, uh, interesting, all the I wills, if you turn, look at chapter 3 and verses 18 through 20, these all deal with what the Lord will do for us. Or even more immediately, the target here in chapter 3 is how he will first do what he does for restored nation of Israel. And so notice these six I wills. God says, first of all, I will gather them that are sorrowful. Then he says, I will undo all that afflict thee. Then he says to them, I will save her that halteth and gather her that was driven out. Then he says, I will get them praise and fame in every land. Then he says, I will bring you again. And his last I will is I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth. God can do some amazing things. And then notice how he's magnified in Zephaniah as Israel's king and as the Lord in Israel's midst, as we saw just a minute ago. Now, Zephaniah saw in the day of the Lord the destruction of his country, his neighbors, and eventually the whole earth. He saw that. What his eyes saw brought urgency to his message for the people. Now just think about that. What God allowed him to see brought urgency. Can I say in our day what we know should bring an urgency to us about the world we live in, about our country? He saw that and it gave him an urgency to his message. Notice his prophecy shouted out for godliness and purity in a nation sinful to its core. The people had turned their backs on God, not only in their personal lives, but also in their worship. And I say this, our nation must turn back to God before it's too late for us. Now you look at these couple books we've looked at tonight, and here's a verse that came to my mind. All these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. You know, a lot of times we make our mistakes in life, and I don't know about you if you have children, but a lot of times We will say to our kids, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I made. Well, God's given us some people that have made some mistakes, and God has 
given those to us for our example to learn from. And may we individually and as a people learn from some of these lessons and let's God have his way in our lives. And let's pray for our country, pray for the leaders of our nation, pray for the world we live in. I'll tell you one thing, one thing we can do is reach the lost before it's eternally too late. Let's pray tonight. Lord, thank you for this day. And Lord, I thank you for these tremendous books. I pray that just some of the information that we've looked at tonight would open our eyes and open our hearts to people and nations that had turned their back on you, that were not allowing you in the midst of them. Lord, sin had taken over. I pray that you would help us, help me, to always be right with you. God, I thank you that you know the end from the beginning, and we trust you. And we look forward to great days ahead. Thank you for this wonderful day you've given us today, for those that were dealt with and those that made decisions and those that were encouraged today, those that followed you in believer's baptism. Lord, thank you for working among us today. Go with us this week. Help us to live for you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.